Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Father, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to, see, to receive glory and honor and blessing. For he was slain and he has risen again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Thank you, Father, for such a glorious hope a glorious assurance that as we live in a broken world, this is not the way things ought to be and this is not the way things will be. For there is a day coming when the same lamb who was slain will return in glory and honor And he will make all things new and his redemptive work will be consummated. And we who are your people have every reason to long for that day because when Christ returns, we shall see him and we shall be like him. For we shall see him just as he is. And so as we live in the already, not yet, that is the motive, the, the perspective that guides us. And so as we rejoice in the work of SNPs, we thank you that their work points to a great day when, when these blankets will be appreciated because they, they, people will understand what they mean. They are tokens of love. They point to a new world when all needs are provided, where comfort will be the order of the day. Not comfort in the sense of self-seeking pleasure, but comfort in the sense of knowing that you are loved, cherished, that you belong to a family. And so as these gifts are sent to orphans and those who are in crisis, we pray that these gifts would indeed point the recipients to the one who has enabled these gifts, to Christ our Savior, who cares and cares so much that he gave himself for us. And we pray that these would, would be a means of leading these people to, to seek after you. That they would be a means of you seeking them. And that we as a church would not stop here with the giving of gifts, but that we would also reach out to the people around us who are in need. And as we enter the Christmas season, we pray not only for ourselves as a church, we pray for all the churches in our region, especially for the Feb Central churches. Help us to be stewards of the time, to take advantage of the opportunities that you're opening to us to proclaim the gospel, 
as people celebrate Christmas, we, may we point to Christ, who is the reason why there is a Christmas. We especially pray for our church planters in the region. They are undergoing spiritual attack during these times. They're going through very hard times, and there's a heaviness that they're undergoing. And we, we are not surprised because ministry is hard and Satan is opposing the work of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray for our church planters that they would stand firm in the Lord and put on the armor of God, which is nothing less than the promises of the gospel. May you refresh our church planters with the promises of the gospel. May they remember that Christ is their sufficiency and that he is the one that they proclaim. May you strengthen them so that they may go forth in boldness to proclaim Christ. And we pray this for ourselves too. That we, your people, might delight in Christ so that we may proclaim him with our lips and our lives. That people may see and rejoice in the wonder, the majesty, the glory of him who is the lover of our souls, him who is our greatest treasure. And so as we come to your word today, we ask that your spirit would guide and direct us so that we may not simply hear, but that we may be doers of the word as your spirit transforms our hearts. May you cause your word implanted in us to bear fruit so that we may be a people who reflect your glory and majesty. The Supreme Christ's name, amen. Turn with me, please, to James chapter 5. We've come to the very end of the book of James, and um, we've focused our attention on the theme of living hope. And... Um, I, I, I really haven't had the chance to say this, but I'm going to say this now. I hope you take the time to look at that triptych, the, the wooden panels in the foyer. They actually um, are a way of summing up what we've been talking about in the book of James. And I, I'm very grateful to Jen McEwen for being so gracious to prepare it. Um, it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that it... Some, Parts of it got rubbed off, but um, in some ways, the art becomes even more compelling because it reflects reality. <laughs> but take, take the time to look at it, and it sums up what we've been talking about. We've been talking about living faith, and living faith, I've deliberately chosen that title as a a sort of an elusive term. It has multiple senses. We, we talk about the faith, the truth we believe, being living because it is focused on Jesus Christ, our living Savior who is coming again. And our faith in the sense of trust in Jesus. So the faith is objective, but there's also the subjective side of our faith, our personal trust in Jesus being living. 
because it is a gift from God. And so we live out the content of our faith in every daily situation by faith because we are to be relying on God for wisdom and strength to be obedient to him in every circumstance. And this living faith in all four senses taken together creates a gospel culture that fosters a flourishing and invites others into its beauty, into what we called last week the hilarity of community. Now James closes the book by orienting us to eternity. That's why we sang, is he worthy? It's a look back, it's a look present, and it's a look forward. It orients us to eternity, which is a, a critical, crucial aspect of living faith, gospel culture. So let's read James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the, all, the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of it. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. 
This is the word of the Lord. Now we see the impact of eternity throughout this passage. James begins with a prophetic tone in verse 1 to verse 6 as he condemns wealthy landowners who are taking advantage of people. Probably some of them were believers who were working for these wealthy landowners. And he's trying to encourage these suffering believers by pointing them to the return of Jesus Christ. We often forget, but at the intersection of time and eternity is the return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. And that future hope changes everything. And so he warns the corrupt rich. Those wealthy landowners were probably not a part of the church. He warns these corrupt rich that the treasures they've accumulated would not last. Verse 2 and verse 3. They will be corroded. In our day, the value of your investments are going to plummet. And their hoarded wealth would actually serve as evidence against them. Verse 4, it would prove their exploitation of the poor. Verse 5, it would prove their self-indulgence. In a very ironic twist, the basis of their security, the thing that they relied on to keep them safe, would be the very thing that would be their downfall. It would serve as evidence against them. See, James wants to reassure the believers, God is not asleep, neither has he forgotten you. You may be powerless to resist the oppressor in verse 6. The wonderful truth in verse 4 is that the Lord Almighty hears their cries. And the reference in verse 6 to the innocent one probably refers to the fact that people were being mistreated for no reason. As innocent people, they were being oppressed and they had no power to resist. But there's almost a double entendre because you think of the preeminent innocent one, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems that James was reassuring them, our Lord Jesus Christ understands what it means to be oppressed. To suffer injustice. He knows your heart. He knows your pain. He's walked through it. And he is coming again to exercise his infinite power. That's the sense of the Lord Almighty. It is the Lord with all his power and military might. He's coming again. And he will make things right. And this eternal perspective keeps our righteous anger at injustice from curdling into sinful wrath. That's why Paul is able to write in Romans chapter 12, Do not take revenge, my dear brothers, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are hard things to do. But we are able to respond to evil with good because we are certain that God will make all things right. 
That's the foundation of this response. And so James wants to guard the people of God against taking revenge. He also wants to guard them lest they envy their rich oppressors. When you're suffering, it's easy to doubt the goodness of God. And so we are tempted to desire riches, thinking that wealth and status would give us security. And I appreciate Matt reading that so well. That was Asaph's experience, isn't it? And so James now orients them to combat this tendency to envy the wicked. He orients them to eternity, beyond their immediate suffering, to the ultimate judgment of God when Christ returns. He wants them to recognize that those who trust in Christ and live out that trust in sacrificial obedience will enjoy the reward that Christ offers. And those who live in selfish self-indulgence will suffer God's wrath for all eternity. Verse 5, it says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's the image of a fatted calf. You're just getting ready to be slaughtered. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, we urge you to flee from the wrath to come and take refuge in Jesus. Trouble is, we all agree Jesus is coming again. Except we live as if he's not. And so James in verse 7 now urges us to live patiently anticipating the return of Christ. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. There's a sense in which the, the farmer knows it's coming. He's anticipating his coming, and he's living in light of that coming. But he's not able to control it, Right? No amount of rain dances can make the rain come. No amount of bad singing can make the rain come. It will come when God sends it. And in the same way, those who are suffering oppression wait on Christ to vindicate them and make things right. Knowing that God is in control and and is guiding events to fulfill His purposes according to His timetable. And we can't rush God. So we wait on Him. And I don't know about you, I'm not a fan of waiting. But that's what we're called to do. That waiting is not a passive acceptance of... uh, (laughs) It is active faith in Him who is our only hope. Verse 8. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You notice, stand firm, that's active faith. Relying on the promises of God demands deliberate dependence and active service. Because those of you who know farmers, you know they're busy even while they're waiting for the rain and waiting for the harvest. There's always something to do. There's always something to weed. And in the same way, we are to be actively serving. And interestingly enough, in verse 9, James points that active waiting into preserving the unity of the community as we wait. He tells us, don't grumble against each other. See, because, see when, we're, when we're under pressure at work, 
at church. It's not the people who are causing us pressure that get the brunt of our frustration, is it? It's the people at home. (laughs) We lash out against the people who are in our home because we can't lash out at the people who are bothering us. And James is saying, don't do that. Not only is it not helpful, look at verse 9. He's saying, our judge is at the door. He hears our bickering and he holds us accountable. Implicitly, James is saying, instead of grumbling against one another, let the hope of eternity lead us to encourage one another to keep trusting our God, our judge, to make things right. So Paul Tripp would write, eternity can rescue us from ourselves. Eternity reminds us that the one place we must never desire to be is in the center of our world. That is the place for God and God alone. And when God is in his rightful place in our world, we can be in the right place in one another's hearts and forge a unified and loving relationship that is a result of serving the same king. If you are God's child, you will worship and serve this king forever and ever and ever. And that's why eternity is such an important component of James' message. Eternity keeps us together, and eternity keeps us serving. And in the face of suffering, he now moves on, in verse 10, to the example of the prophets. They proclaim God's word faithfully in the face of sufferings. In the same way, we resist evil by proclaiming the gospel as we wait. This is our service. This is part and parcel of our calling. And in speaking of the blessing, we, we, we count those blessed, blessed those who have persevered in verse 11, is actually alluding to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to encourage us to persevere as we suffer. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because you're a jerk, because of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James is saying, look, look beyond the immediate suffering for your faithfulness to Christ. Look beyond to the reward that Jesus offers. And it motivates us, especially when we realize that the only thing we really deserve is judgment, isn't it? Because even our best efforts fall way, way, way short of the standards of God. But the awesome reality we proclaim is that Jesus, our judge, paid for the sins of those who would put their faith in him. And he has credited his righteousness to us, so we are actually assured of a reward. It's not a reward we, a reward we earn. We receive it because of his infinite grace. And that's why we serve patiently to the end. Despite any and every hardship, we're looking forward to a reward that we never earned. But in our comfort-driven society, it's hard to imagine how we could count as blessed those who have persevered. I mean, how can you be blessed 
when your life is miserable? Well, James then points us to Job. You recall, Dave Barker preached on Job. God allowed Job to suffer so that his faithfulness to God in the midst of suffering might vindicate God. And in the end, God gave Job far more than he lost. But beyond the material blessings Job received, Job's greatest blessing was that he came away from his suffering with a deeper, fuller understanding of who God is. In Job chapter 42, he said, I know that you can do all things. This is Job responding to God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Well, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Don't miss this. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, suffering and hardship aren't meant to break us. They're meant to draw us to God and make us more like Jesus as we see him in his beauty and majesty. God uses our suffering to draw us to himself because in the end, God himself is our eternal reward. But it's so hard to remember that, isn't it? Like really, we, it's so easy to forget that in the midst of the busyness and in the midst of the struggle. So we need one another if we are to keep this glorious reality before our eyes as we live in the harsh realities of the already not yet. We need each other if we are to persevere in faithfulness to God. That's why James is so concerned for the unity of the community. And that's why in verse 12, he challenges us to be a people of integrity. Our God is faithful, so we must be reliable. We must be so reliable, we don't need to swear an oath for people to believe us. That's what James is talking about. He's not against oath-taking in court. He's against our tendency to say things we don't mean or to make promises we can't keep or that we don't intend to keep. I mean, you've, you ever done that to a kid? You do this and I'll give you ice cream. And then there's all sorts of reasons why ice cream is not going to be a good idea for you afterwards, Right? That's a very small thing. But if we love our neighbor, we must be a people with no fine print. We must be a people of truth who keep our word. And it's a habit that flows from God having given us new life by the word of truth, as James 1.18 would say. We need to be a people of truth so that we can be trusted. And that loving integrity fosters a gospel culture where our relationships are able to grow in intimacy because we are trustworthy as we wait for the consummation of the new creation. And that intimacy then leads us to become a prayerful community because we are so concerned for others, we talk to God about them. 
James tells us, verse 13, to pray when we're in trouble and when things are going well, to sing praise to God, which is a form of prayer. So that James's point is that we pray in any and every situation. And the way he phrases it tells us that it's not simply individual prayer, that is excellent, but communal prayer, that is even better. Notice how he frames it. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. You notice the thems? It's for all of us. We need to be praying for one another together. And this is probably our greatest challenge as a church. Our greatest area for improvement. And I'm glad that God is leading us into challenges beyond our ability because he's teaching us to depend on him alone and to express that reliance in prayer. Because we cannot accomplish anything of eternal significance apart from prayer. As James said in chapter 4, we talked about it last week, you ask not, you do not have because you do not ask God. So, brothers and sisters, we need to pray. Now, James points to the very specific situation of a sick believer. And again, that's about communal care. The elders are to pray for the person and anoint him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. It's not to say that the elders have the gift of healing. I mean, the Apostle Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take away his thorn in the flesh and It's not because he lacked the oil or (laughs) didn't have the elders do it. It, Elders don't necessarily have the gift of healing. Neither does the oil have any medicinal or magical power. Rather, James is saying that as a community represented by the elders, we entrust a person to the Lord recognizing that God alone ultimately heals according to his purposes. And that's why we pray in the name of the Lord. We anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. We're saying, Lord, you're in control. It is not to guarantee healing in every case. James is simply emphasizing our corporate need, first of all, to rely on God who is able to heal and to care for one another in tangible ways. And in light of that, to pray boldly. As Alec Mottier would say, in the prayer of faith, our faith is not that the promises will be fulfilled just like that. It is the faith which rests trustfully in the will of a sovereign, faithful, and loving God. Neither the sick person nor any of the elders is there to insist that his or her will be done. But to put the sick one, don't miss this, within the total eternal security of the unchangeable and unchangeably gracious will of God. We're referring our brother or our sister back to God. And you notice the hope isn't simply physical healing, but comprehensive healing because James says, and the person's sins will also be forgiven. Again, eternity's perspective means that we care for both body and soul. And so James tells us in verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
Again, caring for one another in community means that instead of fighting with one another and criticizing one another, we need to be vulnerable and accountable to one another. It staggers me to think that Asaph wrote down his struggles for the congregation to sing. Can you imagine? The worship leader, the song leader, writing out, brothers and sisters, I was envious of the wicked. I really struggled with this. And here's how, here's what happened to me. See, that's humble, truth-telling confession for the good of the body. And I don't know about you, but I find that extremely scary. But consider the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at the distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So here's a question for each of us to ponder. When you and I talk, who do people hear? Do they hear the Pharisee or do they hear the tax collector? See, the more we know God, the more conscious we should be of our sin. Ultimately, all our theological knowledge needs to boil down to this. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. That's the proof that we really understood the truth. Because to know God is to know that we are, like Paul, the greatest sinner. And if we truly understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have no problems confessing our sins. Because Jesus has already paid for them. And we're not afraid that our sins would be exposed because I have nothing to be afraid of. Our identity is in Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. I confess my sins with the confidence that they are forgiven. And I bring them to the light of day so that my brothers and sisters may come alongside me to help me live up to what Christ has already accomplished on my behalf. Now, James isn't saying we should go all Jerry Springer, bearing our souls to anyone and everybody. He's telling us to confess our sins to brothers and sisters in the church who could pray for us and walk with us so that we would grow in godliness with them. And that's why James, throughout this book, has been calling us to active love and wise humility. He's been trying to cultivate an atmosphere that is conducive for us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. See, a gospel culture is a place that is safe 
Because we are so grateful for the grace that we daily receive from this God that we serve, that we delight to show our brothers and sisters that same grace. And so when a brother or a sister comes to us and says, will you please pray for me because I struggle with this sin? Instead of judging them and looking down on them, we say, brother, sister, thank you for honoring me with your honesty. Let me pray for you. Let me walk with you. Let me come alongside with you and help you grow. Now talk about a big, hairy, audacious goal. That's it. See, that's something that only the Spirit of God can develop. Only the Spirit of God can teach us that kind of humility and love that allows us, that allows people to feel safe enough to share their struggles with us and that enables us to, to be a blessing to them, to be able to help them. That's something that only the Spirit can do. And that's precisely why we pray. And thankfully, verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And when you say, well, that it disqualifies me because I, I, I am not righteous. Well, James points us to Elijah. And you will object, well, Elijah's a prophet for crying out loud. I'm just me. But notice how James frames it. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being even as we are. You notice the emphasis? He's a human being just like you and me. And as he prayed according to God's command, we have the confidence God will answer our prayers just as he answered Elijah. Not because we're anything better than Elijah, but because we are righteous people in Christ. Through faith, we've been united to Christ. The perfect righteousness of Jesus is our righteousness. And so we are able to approach God boldly and confidently in prayer. God will answer our prayers. I mean, Jesus died so God would hear us. And when we don't pray, it's as if we're neglecting that redemptive accomplishment of Jesus. confidence as we pray that God would build us into the kind of church he wants us to be is that we will become a community that truly embodies the gospel message because that's what God intends for any and every church that proclaims Christ anyway. And because we're confident that God will answer our prayer, we keep working towards a gospel culture. We are so enthralled with the hope of becoming like Jesus. We don't want anybody left behind. Not in the Hal Lindsey way. And so verse 19 and 20, we work to restore a brother or sister who is wandering from the truth. This can mean that the person's embracing false, gospel, false doctrine, but because James does not separate doctrine from practice, it can also mean that the person's life is becoming untruthful. The person believes the gospel, believes the truth, but isn't conforming his life to the truth. Either way, correction and restoration are necessary. 
And we need to bring that person back. As Alec Mottier would say, every Christian fellowship, as James implies in these verses, is a place of truth and holiness. The truth is held by every member, and the life which matches the truth is lived out. We must be watchful all the time for one another's welfare and continuance in truth and life. We know within ourselves how easy it is to slip away from a full commitment to our Lord. And this is a matter of not just temporal life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. The genuineness of our salvation is demonstrated by our perseverance in faith. Because God is preserving us. And one of the ways God enables us to persevere is through the ministry of our fellow believers. That's why we all need the church. See, living faith extends beyond personal growth to corporate health. We nurture a gospel culture. We need to grow together as a truth-telling, prayerful, caring community living in light of eternity so that we might truly be an outpost of the kingdom of God that has come and is coming. We are privileged to foreshadow the beauty and goodness of God's new creation in the midst of this broken world. And yes, we have a very long way to go. But our confidence is that the same God who implanted the word in our hearts in salvation is the same one who is actively at work in us, causing that implanted word to bear fruit. And when Christ returns, that work will be consummated. We will be like Jesus. And we'll be worshiping him together with everyone who has become like Jesus. That's why we can be patient with one another. And so, brothers and sisters, let's continue to wait on Christ actively. And as we wait for the coming of Christ, let us hold before one another the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this glorious text. For the assurance that everything that is wrong in this world will be made right. And the, the injustices that we have suffered will be addressed and there will be redress. But even as we long for justice for ourselves, we realize that we ourselves have also been guilty of injustice. We have sinned against others. We have wronged others. And we have been forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our judge. And so, Father, we pray, may the reality of forgiveness that we have received lead us to be agents ministers of reconciliation 
people who seek to reconcile in humility and love and people who proclaim the reconciling work of Christ to those around us. But Father, may we embody this reality as a church that we would be a people transformed by the gospel pointing the people around us to the glories of the world that is to come as we point one another to that future hope that one day we will be like Jesus and these bodies that are broken will one day be made new. We will be fit to stand before the glorious God who made us. And forever we will be with the Lord. Thank you for such a hope secured by the death and resurrection of your Son. Oh Lord, may this glorious hope strengthen us daily to show forth your praise by the power of your Spirit. And we ask this not for ourselves, but for the glory and honor of your matchless name. In Christ we pray. Amen.